Hi everyone! Welcome back to the UM Data Scientist Mindsets Podcast. Yes, it's our new episode again. So this episode is focused not only on the research and technologies being developed in the field, but also the diverse and interesting people who either do data science or collaborate with those in the field. So I am Chang Sun, and I will be your host for this episode. For our new listeners, I am a PhD student at the Institute of Data Science at the Faculty of Science and Engineering. Today, we have Constance Sumeri and Daria Mitchum with us in the room to talk about workness and science. So, Daria, do you want to introduce yourself and briefly describe the topic of today? Yeah, thanks so much for having us. It's really a pleasure to be here and to speak to you. I'm a philosopher. I work in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences.、Um, I work quite closely with many members of the data science community around the university, mostly on questions concerning the ethical, social, and political implications and also context of data science, but also on some more fundamental questions concerning、uh, the nature of knowledge, how knowledge is constructed, maintained, and transferred in environments that contain people and machines.、Um, Yeah, so the topic we're going to talk about today is a little bit of a tricky one. Constance and I have sort of been playing around and discussing it for for a while.、Um, I guess when we talk about wokeness at, in the university, generally it's taken to mean a kind of irrational or hysterical sensitivity to issues are involving social justice,、um, especially where categories like race and gender are involved. And the supposed, let's say, dangerous element,、um, and I think we're going to try to talk about that and be a little bit critical about this—the way that this notion of wokeness is is utilized、um, and is sometimes weaponized. But the supposed dangerous element of wokeness or woke culture, as it sometimes gets called in the university, is that it implies a sort of violent intolerance or inability to handle, to discuss、uh, dissenting ideas. Or anything that the quote-unquote woke people might somehow find upsetting or insulting or offensive. So, on the one hand, wokeness is depicted as a kind of threat to many traditional ideas and practices, and I think we'll talk more about that. And on the other hand, it's often perceived as a threat to liberal ideas about free speech and discussion. And also a threat to the nature, let's say, of scientific discourse, or to the ideal of scientific objectivity.、Um, I should say that I'm pretty critical about thinking about wokeness in this way. Although I'm someone who I think tries to take questions of freedom of speech,、um, freedom of discussion, freedom of opinion, and certainly what it is to do science, I try to take those questions very seriously at the same time. Yes, thank you, Chang. Hi, everyone. I'm Constance. I'm the head of the Diversity and Inclusivity Office. I'm also an historian of science, but today I'm here as what some people probably would perceive as、uh, the queen of wokeness, or as some <laughs> people would、uh, like to call me like this. Others think I am not woke enough. But、um, the questions that Darren just elaborated on, on what wokeness actually then signifies in our context, are questions that. I can, I think, truthfully say, sometimes keep me awake at night. And Darren and I, and also with other colleagues, we have been trying to disentangle some of the concepts that are being used and some of the buzzwords that are flying around. And 
We are looking for different formats of having this kind of conversation. So that's why we are really happy, Chang, that we are invited here today to try out a podcast as a format to have this conversation on wokeness and science. And I think as a disclaimer, we could say that we don't try to solve this. Um, I don't know what to call it. We don't try to solve this conundrum. I think we have no idea, really. Yeah. Yes, that is, that is really the case. We have no idea what the conundrum exactly is to start with and how to solve it. But we do think it is worthwhile to enter the conversation and, as I said, disentangle some of the many elements that are being thrown around fairly easily in our discourse at UM, but also in the national media and international media. Yeah, I think it's really important that we try to at least clarify not just some of the terms, because of course you can define terms in this way or that way, but also try to clarify, or as you say nicely, disentangle uh, the context. I think the cultural context, the scientific context, and also the political context in which a lot of these terms are deployed. Um, and as I already said, sometimes weaponized, I think. Yeah, so I think our listeners will be surprised that this episode will be slightly different from the previous ones. Normally, we will have like a answer question and answer with the hosts and speakers. But today, we would like to host this more in a more active way. So we will have more dynamic conversation in this episode. I'm really happy to have you two here and to talk about workness and science because I'm very new to this topic. I'm also like sitting here and learning what exactly you mean on this thing. I think that's really important also. It's, it's nice that you point that out, that sometimes things that seem really imposing uh, or a really big part of academic life or the academic culture are in fact foreign to many of the people who are part of this community. And that might mean that they're simply not interested in it. It might mean that they are not aware that it's something that they should or could engage in. Or it might mean, on the other hand, that it's something that's really being blown out of proportion, either by us or, yeah. or by others. Indeed. So, Darren, I think that it's quite interesting to think about the fact that when we hear people feeling quite alienated from the wokeness science debate, either because maybe they're not familiar with it or they think it's blown out of proportion, I'm wondering... Um, Chang, when you look back at 14 episodes of doing this podcast with many colleagues and students who are invested in inclusivity, and when you think about wokeness as a kind of threat to academic freedom, to the work that we do in and outside of the classroom, is that something that feels familiar to you now having done all of these episodes and listened to the stories? Do you sense wokeness in a, in a problematic way? I don't feel as problematic, actually. Like I, I interview many guest speakers, and while they explain what they faced issues before and what they think the situation can be better, and I think instead of raising problems, at least from the speakers, instead of raising the issues and difficulties they're facing, they are more like, oh, let's make it better. Or how can we do that better in this sense? So I always receive it in a very positive way, to be honest. But um, I also wonder, like, why do you think it can be negative or it can be a problematic? 
Yeah, I think that's the big question, right? If wokeness means being awake, being alert to what are possible injustices in the system in which we are operating as our university, for example, and being alert to these and thinking about ways indeed to improve accessibility, for example, of academia and of our university, which is the fact that people can study and work here happily. So, Darren, what is then the danger of it? Well, I mean... I guess that there would be a difference or a perceived difference between, on the one hand, being alert to situations of social injustice, responding to situations of social injustice, trying to think about ways in which, as researchers, as scientists, as a university, as a community, we can be more inclusive, take more diverse views into account, and as, as a result, solve problems in a more constructive and productive way. On the other hand, I guess, I mean, the main concern that gets raised in relation to wokeness is that it somehow stands in opposition to certain deeply held ideals about freedom of speech. And that's where this connection between wokeness and what often gets called cancel culture comes in. So there is an idea that this general atmosphere, this wokeness culture, that has become hypersensitive to questions about social injustice, especially certain types of questions about social injustice, so questions especially concerning categories like race, sex, gender, has led to a situation where certain topics, certain questions, certain ways of approaching problems have been suppressed or are suppressed. Or there is a kind of fear that addressing certain questions, addressing certain topics, taking certain approaches will lead to uh, individuals being cancelled, and that meaning somehow having their speech suppressed, having their platforms taken away. So I, I think that is how I would try to describe this sense of danger and this sense of threat that goes around this notion of wokeness or of woke culture. It just reminds me that, like, for instance, in the data science field, when we design a model, when we use the data set, it should be no bias in the data set. And I observe a lot of research projects in data science or probably in general in healthcare as well, like health research, that they require you to do gender intersection. So you, you look at male and female separately because they might have different access to the healthcare or spend different amount of money. Yeah, so those like topic, at least in many conferences in data science are being discussed in a technical way, when you when you talk about a model is biased and you're more, more comfortable to deal with the topic instead of pointing to someone like the data collector. Or there is someone behind the model. But I think actually that the data science community is really open to discussing these questions yeah. and is really concerned about the problems that bias in the data, bias in the data collection can create. So I mean so I think that's a really positive that's a really positive thing. Obviously it links a little bit to what we're what we're talking about now. Yes. Well it does link to it because in the end of the day, you know, as a data scientist or any other scientist, you want to do science that is as relevant as possible, right? And if someone can call you out on, oh, wait, you didn't pay attention to um, gendered aspects in the data, you didn't pay attention to skin colors in your facial recognition software, being called out on this in the end makes our technologies more appropriate or whatever other science we are working on. 
So, and, you know, that's the beautiful story, of course, that we've constructed also around wokeness, if you want, is being alert to these kind of things and being an integral part of doing good science is being alert to these kind of biases that we have to the injustices in the world so that our science is relevant for everyone, not just for a select group of people. But at the same time, I, don't, I, I also understand that the fears that Darren was uh, sketching earlier are very real fears, that uh, cancellation, non-platforming, being afraid to open your mouth and facing repercussions in what the story goes here, often angry students, for example, that this is a fear that we also cannot deny or that we don't want to take away, I think. So one of the elements about this fear that I'm wondering is I talked to someone and then someone said, yeah, my biggest worry at the moment is that I have to self-censor myself all the time. I can't just say anymore what I want. And this is not what freedom of speech and academic freedom is about. And then I'm, I'm wondering, Darian, wh why do people come up with the idea that self-censorship is something novel? Or is it just, is it a different form of self-censorship that they are experiencing at the moment? Because we also all, always censor ourselves in any given context of what we think is appropriate in that context. So what do you think? Yeah, I would say that we can probably talk about self-censorship in two different ways. So on the one hand, I'm continuously in a process of reflecting on what it is that I think, reflecting on what, my, what ideas I hold, reflecting on what it is that I think is acceptable or productive or interesting to say in, a, in public space. And I can engage in that sort of internally. I can think about it myself. I can have a discussion with other people around me about what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what are good questions, what are not good questions to ask maybe. And I think in, in that sense, we're involved continuously in a sort of process of self-censorship, right? So I'm continuously reflecting on what it is that I, what it is that I think, and I'm continuously talking to others about what sort of utterances, what kind of speech propositions might be acceptable in certain contexts or not acceptable in other contexts. I think the idea is that if you, as a result of that internal or external dialogue, come to a conclusion that there are certain things that you want to say and you think are relevant to say and you think you should be able to say, but then you don't feel comfortable saying them because of what you think will be the repercussions within your community, either the social repercussions or potentially legal repercussions, or people are concerned also potentially about the employment repercussions even, right? So I think in those cases, that's a different type of self-censorship. So I think that the first form of self-censorship that you point to is something that scientists or academics are continuously doing all the time, and it's not something new, and we've always done it, and it's really a part of what it is to be a scientist, to think scientifically, is to continuously, critically reflect on the concepts you're using, the way you're using those concepts, the values that are involved, and so on and so forth. The second type, which I think has to do with the, the concern that many people raise is, well, are there ideas, concepts, utterances that I feel I should be able to make use of, but I'm scared to for some reason? Now, I think there is a sort of idea that's being deployed, and this is there's a kind of army of woke students marching around the university trying to cancel or silence anyone they disagree with and trying to shut down discussion. Yeah, that would be my question. Is this, is this happening in that Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the kind of caricature that one often finds on social media or one finds in certain types of media outlets. 
Um, and I think that is maybe a kind of you know, fear or anxiety that some academics or some scientists have. Obviously, I, I think that doesn't really reflect the reality of the situation. I, I certainly have not encountered this sort of woke mob marching around. Is it happening? Well, maybe. Maybe there are a handful of examples that we can point to. But I think if there is a threat to free speech in our societies, I wouldn't say that it's coming primarily from people worried about social justice. I think the more typical scenario that I've seen is where someone makes a statement that others find somehow objectionable, and when they're called on it, called into a real discussion about it, they start yelling about freedom of speech and being canceled and effectively then shut down the discussion. And as a philosopher, I find that really bizarre. Essentially, by starting to yell about free speech and cancel culture, people are shutting down discussion, shutting down dissenting or minority voices that are really fundamental to a democratic culture, but also to adhering to certain epistemic values that I think we take very seriously within the university. And I think also that the situation has, in a certain sense, reached a level of complete absurdity. And I think it's really important that we try to separate out what are serious concerns and what are really sort of absurd arguments. And when I talk about absurd arguments, I mean, I think in conservative media outlets now, you can find all these accusations that BlackRock, which is a giant, you know, I think it's the largest money management firm in the world, is super woke and they are now propagating this woke culture, and they've fallen victim to woke culture because BlackRock's CEO is advising other CEOs to work to reduce greenhouse gases. And then you have this really bizarre situation where BlackRock's CEO, Larry Fink, is now insisting, oh, no, he's not woke, actually. He's not, he's not woke. He is really just interested in making money, but you know, being concerned about the environment and being concerned about climate change, oh, that's really important to making money also. So I think we enter into these really bizarre situations now where the concept of wokeness has been weaponized or the idea of wokeness has been weaponized to such an extent that it's being deployed to shut down discussions about environmental degradation, to shut down discussions about climate change, and not only to shut down discussions, but to try to cast a negative light on certain kinds of action. And I think that is a really dangerous precedent and think something that we need to be really aware of and really actually quite concerned about as well. So you're saying that the term wokeness is rhetorically weaponized to cancel conversations on subjects that we should have conversations about, so that cancellation works both ways, and that it seems that one side wants to use cancellation to only describe what the others are doing, whereas they are doing exactly the same thing. That's exactly what I'm saying. You're much, <laughs> you're much more eloquent than, than I am. And I mean, I, I think that one interesting example, and so the title, the idea that we started this discussion with was a bit the relationship between wokeness and science. And oftentimes this relationship is explained in terms of an opposition, right? So there is a kind of opposition between the notion of wokeness, the, the idea of being hypersensitive about offensive language or about offending people, about hurting feelings on the one hand, and scientific objectivity, scientific discourse on the other hand. Now what we're seeing, which I think is super dangerous and concerning, is that this notion of wokeness is being used to shut down discussions about 
scientific evidence. So it's being used to shut down discussions about what are the best ways to respond to environmental degradation, to respond to climate change, to respond to biodiversity loss. We say, oh, that's woke now. So that's that's really woke to think about those things. And so we're not going to think, we're not going to, we're going to tar that, those things with this kind of brush. Exactly. So we are in basically in a situation where we do have scientific consensus on all kinds of issues relating to sustainability, whether or not uh, Svartopit can be contextualized in 19th century racism. But then the question is the scientific consensus itself always, of course, then begs the question, okay, what do we as a society, if that is the scientific consensus at the moment in time in which we are living, what are we going to do with it? And this question of what are we going to do with it is now portrayed as being hijacked by activists and because of that, we shouldn't ask the question. Yeah, I mean, you, you did something there by equating discussions about climate change or environmental degradation or biodiversity loss and the body of scientific evidence around that with discussions about the origins of the traditions around the Zwartopit figure. There's a discussion to be had about whether those are the same types of evidence, whether we're dealing with the same type of discourse, the same type of discussion. But yeah, essentially, essentially, I think that's the, that's the story. So then the moment to intervene is the moment when we say, okay, we have certain consensus among historians or among climate scientists or among whoever scientists. And as a university also, then the question for us, okay, when there is this consensus, what are we going to do with it? I just read in a Dutch tabloid that indeed universities are following the activists in their anti-racism policies, but also in their climate policies. So that is the kind of danger that you were... uh Yeah, uh, that's absolutely the danger that I'm pointing to. So, I mean, this idea that, let's say, there are a few steps that are taken, right? So on the one hand, there's this idea that the activists are super woke. And being super woke is a negative thing. It's a dangerous thing. It's a threat to freedom of speech. It's a threat to democratic society. It's a threat to scientific discourse. And then making the next step to saying, well, so if the activists are saying that universities or whatever bodies should follow the scientific evidence when it comes to addressing questions about climate change, changing our behavior, changing the institution's behavior as a response to climate change or as a response to environmental degradation, and then saying, well, no, so that's being pushed by the activists who are super woke, so we shouldn't do that, right? So I think that's an extremely, extremely dangerous situation. I think that it's intentional. So I think that it's not some sort of grand conspiracy. It's very clear that there is an intentional effort on the part of certain media outlets, for example, to make this association between activism, wokeness, and some sort of threat to democratic society, and then use that association, that's what we're talking about, this weaponization, right? Use that association to try to suppress certain forms of discussion, certain forms of discourse, and also certain types of behavior. I think that's quite clear that that's what's happening, and I think that's a really dangerous precedent. And I think that that is much more, let's say, at least in my own experience, I can only really speak from my own experience, that's much more descriptive of what's actually going around or going on in relation to these ideas of wokeness and cancel culture than this idea that there is this army of you know woke students led by Constance going around the university shutting, shutting down discussions of Huckleberry Finn or, or whatever it is, right? Which is not true. Which is not true, just to be clear. That is absolutely not true. Constance uses the word woman on a regular basis. Yes, I do. Constance reads Mark Twain. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
So can I say that, like, for instance, when we have, you know, we organize this women data science every year for three years already. We work so hard to also attract male to join the conferences because the title is Women Data Science. But we always say that the aim is to support women in the field, but we also want gender equality instead of only invite female. So I also like sometimes see that, for instance, if you emphasize something, you also exclude the other party, right? And um, we normally see in these conferences, of course, we have more female in the uh, venue and then men become minority and then we are trying to actually balance that like we want to have the same ratio of the participants to come instead of only for women when you talk about that like I was thinking um, my friend was saying that oh I saw this event but it seems like only open for female because it's called women data science and I was like, no, 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 it's open for everyone. But I feel the hidden feeling from people that, oh, yeah. But they won't say that, oh, that's that's exclusive for men, if you call that women data science. Why we don't have men in data science? I think this touches upon a very interesting question that is also coming back to the fear surrounding wokeness, to the discomfort with censorship that we talked about. If you have more voices of minoritized groups that speak up and that want to highlight their experiences and that fight for equality, like, for example, in gender equality, what is the role of the former or the still majority group in that? And the role, of course, I guess that is also where you are going at, like gender equality is not just a question of women fighting for gender equality. That is something that the whole population together has to be willing to work on. And this perceived idea that you lose something by, you know, leading to gender equity, meaning helping, in this case, women researchers to equal the playing field for women researchers, if that means that the majority group now, then in this case scenario being men, have to give something up for it, that is, I assume, this scary and a scene and people can see the bigger picture but at the end of the day you also see your own individual experiences here and you might be the one who is suffering from this and I think that is very similar to the idea of censorship if you you know in a, as a bigger group were the ones in charge of deciding what kind of language use is acceptable in, in a scientific context for example what kind of questions are we interested in and suddenly there are other groups bringing in different questions and demanding a change of language that is maybe very threatening to the group that used to be always in charge of deciding how the cookie crumbles. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I think it's also really important to emphasize that maybe some of the concern that gets voiced about wokeness, woke culture, cancel culture may have a point. I think it's really important that we leave spaces open for learning and also for forgiveness sometimes, and for the idea that people can change and can change their attitudes, can change the way they think, and can change the way that they speak, and that the most, I think, you know, generous thing, the most progressive thing that we can often do is to give people that chance to change. I think that we can say that in our contemporary media culture, and maybe to a certain extent also in our contemporary academic culture. I mean, the two are now very closely intertwined and overlapping with one another, obviously. There is 
not always the kind of space for learning, for dialogue, and indeed for forgiveness, and out of that experience for building solidarity that we would like to see and that I think also would be more constructive. I think that the idea of understanding that everyone has a different pace of moving in this discourse and in this conversation is really important because, you know, if you're running ahead, knowing exactly where you want to go, then you can't take other people anymore with you. And I also do think that it's a conversation we quite often have, I think, at this university also as a teacher. You know, when we talk about diversity and inclusivity, it's quite normal in this narrative that we demand people to be able to feel uncomfortable. Right? Having the conversations about social injustices, for example, demand that someone is open to allowing this conversation, this uncomfortable conversation, to enter your teaching space, for example. And I think this goes two ways. Right? It also means that the discomfort of being confronted with people that are not even close to being, if you want to think of it in a linear way, which I don't necessarily, but not even close to where you are in the way you talk about a certain topic, that is also a discomfort that we have to be able to deal with and that we have to be able to talk to about each other. Yeah, I think it's important that when the kids grow up, they learn it. For instance, when I listen to the conversation, I, I am kind of person who is always trying to avoid conflicts. Like for instance, if we have disagreement, I will listen. I, it doesn't mean I will agree, but I normally won't argue back. I won't against your opinion, but I will listen, right? But also people, whether they are open to speak up, is very culture-based, I think. But I think it's very important that the kids, when they grow up, when they have different ideas, it's the same for university students, when they have different ideas, um, they, no matter who is right, who is wrong, they should feel comfortable to express their opinions. And I think one important point when we discuss this, it reminds me the social media right now, because we had an interview with uh, Luana Russell from uh, Fasos as well, and she's doing research on political polarization on social media or in general. But I think if you look at social media, and you see, let's say, two extreme opinions on something. And you will see one majority and one minority. First, you don't know who gave you that racial even. Probably it's algorithm that's showing that racial, not giving you all. There are like 10,000 opinions. And then they give you first hundreds. And you have a feeling, most of the people, thinking that way. And then the minority, no matter who, say something, a sentence, and get orally violenced back. You know, like a not nice way. It's not a discussion, not an argument. It's just saying something nonsense to each other and to give the, even not an opinion, just want the other person shut down, you know? So I was also thinking, when we think about like young generation, they spend more time on social media. They basically see discussion digitally. How they feel it when they grow up? Yeah, I think that's a really important and difficult question about how the change in the medium through which we engage in discussion actually changes the way we experience that discussion. Um, and I think that's something that we're going to have to study and think about a lot as the current generation, the generation of real digital natives uh, who are used to engaging in all sorts of discussions, you know, via various platforms, via text, via emoji, etc., as they grow up and as they assume positions of responsibility. On the question of being comfortable or uncomfortable, 
I think it's really important that people are comfortable with being uncomfortable sometimes. And it's important that the university and that our classrooms are a space where people feel that it's okay to sometimes be uncomfortable. And that means, of course, that yes, I think I, I feel very, very strongly about questions of free speech. And I think that people indeed should be able to express whatever position or whatever point that they see fit. And I also think that people should be open to being called out when the positions that they are putting forward, when the ideas that they are putting forward can be shown to be false, can be shown to be problematic for a whole host of reasons, sometimes maybe can be shown not to even have a place within scientific or academic discussion. So I'm absolutely okay with people saying, you know, we need a free space in which we can feel comfortable to say what we want. Okay, fine. But then you also have to be open to the possibility that someone else says what they want. And what someone else says is that what you're saying is nonsense. And we have to be able to talk that out, to work that out. In, again, in a space where, yes, of course, it's important that we feel safe, that we feel comfortable, that we feel open to having those kinds of dialogues and debates. So I, I think it's really important to emphasize that this notion of free speech that we seem to hold on to so dearly is not just about saying whatever you want and then moving on, right? It's about saying what you want, yes, saying what you believe, saying what you think. Also, it's about being open to being called out being open to having reasons, having explanations demanded from you, yeah. and maybe having to face the consequences that what you've said isn't valid, what you've said is nonsense. I say things all the time that after discussion, after reflection, I realize, yeah, actually, that was completely erroneous. I was completely on the wrong track in saying that or in thinking that, and I need to really rethink a lot of things now, right? Mm -hmm. That's what scientific culture should be doing. Yeah, I agree. I think it's just the whole thing reminds me, I always had the conversation with my PhD promoter, Michelle. He always made the conversation very open. It made me very comfortable to express my ideas and then dive into the reason why you think in that way. And he would ask challenging questions and to just, you know, have this uh, vivid conversation and then he also says something like, it can be wrong in science. Like, for instance, when you do research, your whole discovery is not interesting or is false or whatever. But it's still a discovery. You need to accept that. You need to open to that. It's not like all, you th all the research you do will be right or you make it right. But it's kind of like mentor feeling I got is like really, I don't know whether it's all from science is like only in science or in general everyone should have that concept and i think this comfort with the discomfort yeah. of actually having to ask okay what did i just say what is my actual argument behind it might i be wrong or might i actually be excluding yeah. people in the way i talk about it i think that is the kind of discomfort that we should expect from each other but it also means we have to be able if someone says something that you find truly appalling or scientifically completely outdated, that you give the other person the benefit of the doubt of keep on asking questions about it, of not just immediately saying, no, I'm not going to talk about you anymore because you're, and then, you know, fill any, any ism that you want to think about and point the finger. And also they are continuing the conversation. And I think that this discomfort has to come from both sides. Mm -hmm. So cancelling from both sides, whether it is, I don't want to talk with you because you are a racist, or saying, I don't want to talk about you because it's freedom of speech and I can do whatever I want, 
the both scenarios are not conducive to what we want to do in our classroom or in any academic conversation. Absolutely. So I think in the classroom, in the university, we are in a context where it is completely reasonable that we are asked to justify and to give reasons for the statements that we make. I think, I mean, you have Michelle as your supervisor, so you're very lucky in that regard. And I, I think Michelle is great in that way. You could say what you want, make the statements, but give the reason, give the justification, and accept that you may be mistaken, right? Yeah. Accept that you may be going down the wrong path. That's extremely important in all aspects of university life, I think. Indeed, and also like to make it comfortable to feel uncomfortable or discomfortable is very important, because I remember the discomfortable feelings, like some conversation or some viewpoints I don't agree or I feel very offensive. But after several times, I kind of be more comfortable or open to that situation. Then the conversation can continue. Otherwise, you internally shut down. You yourself. In my mind, I close this conversation. You're not talking to the other person anymore. But I think it's important, especially in the university. We are not doing that. I no, hope. then don't, then we don't need to show up tomorrow. Right? If that's what we intend to do. I, I think that's what I wanted to say when I talked about the space of learning, the space of a kind of forgiveness also yeah. of ourselves for being wrong sometimes, yeah. and also forgiveness of others for for being wrong, and then the space of development where we start. Finally, through this process of discourse, which is obviously sometimes uncomfortable, difficult, well, we start to generate a kind of togetherness, a kind of solidarity in this project of knowledge that we are engaged in. Yeah, and there's one other thing we now touched upon weaponization earlier. And weaponization, if we talk about wokeness being used, being weaponized as a rhetorical tool, assumes some sort of underlying agenda that does do this very consciously. And I think we would like to also have an episode where we talk about then the concept of bullshit in this respect. Yeah, and I guess you're using bullshit in the now completely acceptable scientific sense of the term. Is that Obviously. right? Obviously, because we're having a conversation about wokeness and science. I mean, I think bullshit as a scientific term, so bullshit, it's a funny situation that bullshit has now sort of entered the philosophical lexicon and the scientific lexicon. And a, a bullshit utterance or a bullshit statement is a statement that aims to persuade without having any interest in whether it's true or false, right? So bullshit is different from lying, right? Because the liar is concerned with the truth or the falsehood of what they're saying. And they are generally trying to, let's say, somehow clothe the falsehood in a veil of truthiness or something like that, right? The bullshitter is simply not concerned. The bullshitter is simply trying to persuade or trying to accomplish something, often to try to accomplish something politically or socially through the use of rhetoric without a concern for whether the statement is true or false. And I think, for example, we spoke a bit earlier about the case of whether or not the money management from BlackRock was now woke, quote-unquote, because they were taking an interest in climate change issues. And I think probably that's a pretty good instance of using the term woke in simply a way that is bullshit, right? So it's a way that's not interested in the truth or the falsity of the statement, right? Never mind whether it's interested in the truth or the objectivity of the body of scientific evidence relating to climate change and environmental degradation. It's simply a statement that is trying to persuade someone. Yes, so I think that we would like to still next time maybe talk about wokeness as a bullshit argument. So we started with woke as science and now we're moving on to wokeness and bullshit. Yes. Great. I look forward. <laughs> Me too.
Yeah, it's very uh, nice and a philosophical conversation. And then it's like I had to keep thinking deeply, thinking all the things I have experienced. Yeah. And then uh, triggered moments that I feel like, oh, that is the situation you were talking about. Oh, that's the case. Because while we talk about those things, as I mentioned, that it really depends on everyone's background, how you grew up. Because uh, simply you cannot understand a situation you never experienced. Yeah. Right. So like when I uh, when I'm in this conversation, I was listening and then I saw a lot of things coming up in my mind. And I think it's really important that to have those type of conversation. And I think for the listeners also it's important when they listen to this and they can talk about the content they listened from the episode and with their friends. And then um, they can have their opinion on our opinion, of course. Yeah. Then they're um, open to discuss and also like uh, commenting. Yes, that, that's the right. idea, right? We didn't want to offer, we can't offer any solutions, but hopefully that can be inspiration for uh, the kitchen conversations at parties. <laughs> I think we flatter ourselves a little bit. <laughs> that anyone will be no, talking about us. us and, okay, yeah. I meant the topic. <laughs> I don't see myself becoming a, a hot topic of conversation. Conversation at, uh, at parties around Maastricht. But <laughs> well, you never know. After some drinks, it can be a philosophical conversation indeed. about life. Indeed, yes, indeed. After yes. a few drinks, the conversations tend to get more and more philosophical. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So thank you very much for having this conversation. And I hope we're going to have next episode about wokeness and bullshit. That's a idea. So. Yeah. I hope so too. Yeah, I think you've convinced us that, that we need to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, we also very welcome our listeners to give comments and then to share their thoughts. Yes, please. And if we want to do more episodes, also ideas on topics that relate to wokeness, science, bullshit that we could cover That's and maybe cool. invite other guests. Yes. And if the people think, oh, I have really good idea, they can also contact us and to share some ideas. And then if they are interested in to be a guest speaker, they can also join us. Absolutely. Yes. I think our aim is to broaden the conversation. Yes. Right. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. To our listeners, thank you for joining us today. More information about our guests and today's episode will be posted in our show notes on our website. Thank you for joining us today. Follow us on our Instagram and Twitter at DS Mindsets. DS Mindsets podcast is funded by UM Diversity and Inclusivity Grant. Special thanks go to UM Inner City Libraries Makerspace for support in recording of the podcast.